This is one of the most beautiful places in the whole wide world. Australia has been called the lucky country. But even though you've got a magnificent climate, beautiful beaches, wonderful forests, and one of the highest standards of living in the world, not everything is wonderful in Australia. Australia has the same problems as the rest of the world. It has crime. It has drug addiction. It has the problem of alcoholism. It teaches us a lesson when we think about these things that beauty outside does not change a person inside. The great Roman Catholic theologian St. Augustine said, our souls were made for God and they cannot rest until they rest in Him. Only God can solve the problem of man's heart. I'm John Carter at Bondi Beach, New South Wales, Australia. Welcome to the Carter Report. Fish stories have been around forever and ever. And this one is for the boys and girls. Why do fish avoid the computer? Because they don't want to get caught in the internet. <laughs> anyway, two of the best stories in the Bible are about fish. In the Old Testament, we have Jonah and the whale. And in the New Testament, we have the amazing story of the five barley loaves and the two small fish. And this is the one we're going to look at this morning. Jesus had retired to a secluded place in the hills with his disciples to have a rest. But from his vantage point, Jesus could see thousands of people walking quickly towards the hillside and his heart went out to them. Let's pretend that we're a part of the crowd. We have heard Jesus speak before, and it's not only what he says that attracts us to him, but also the way that he says it. Unlike some of the priests, his words aren't harsh and cutting, but instead we hear gracious words of love and mercy that are like the balm of Gilead to our souls. His voice is full of compassion, which creates a desire in us to never want to leave his side. And he is indeed the desire of all the ages. We push to the front of the crowd because we don't want to miss one word that he says. And also, we want to experience the holiness of his presence. The crowd has now grown to 5,000 men, plus women and children, which probably brings it up to between 10 and 15,000 people. And that's a lot of people. The afternoon quickly slips by, and then all of a sudden, Jesus stops speaking to us. The disciples who are sitting closest to him suggest that he sends us home. For the next little while, you and I are very glad that we are sitting at the front so that we can hear and see the coming events. Jesus replies to the disciples, we can't send these people home without feeding them first. And then he turns to Philip and asks, where can we buy some bread so that they can eat? Now we can tell by the look on Philip's face that he is thinking, are you kidding? He doesn't say it out loud, of course, because that would be very disrespectful. But he does say, Lord, eight months' wages wouldn't 
buy enough food for these thousands of people. Andrew then steps forward with a young lad that he's found in the crowd and says, this boy has five small barley loaves and two fish, but what are they amongst so many? The boy looks more than a little bewildered. Like most boys, one of his favorite things to do is to eat, hence the little bag of goodies. No pizza or French fries here, though, but something more substantial. Things are now starting to get very interesting, and we can hardly wait to see what Jesus will do next. He tells us to sit down on the grass, which we're happy to do because we've been standing for quite a while. Everyone is quiet, even the babies, as we all sense that something extraordinary is about to happen. Jesus takes the five small barley loaves and the two fish. And he looks up to heaven and he gives thanks. We then watch as he breaks the bread and the fish and gives the pieces over to the disciples and then they distribute the meal to us. We all hold our breath as we wait for the food to run out. But no, something strange is happening here. As the disciples walk through the crowd, handing out the food, none of the baskets get empty. When we have all had enough to eat, Jesus tells the disciples, go and collect the food that's left over. And then this is when we realize we have just witnessed another miracle because the remaining food fills 12 baskets. So Jesus has fed about 15,000 people or more plus 12 baskets left over. This story tells us many lessons, but just a couple. Number one, nothing is too difficult when God is in it. He will provide. Number two, young people, Let's remember the lad. We are never too young, or too old for that matter, to be used of God to do something grand. And number three, sometimes we feel insecure. We feel we don't have the ability to be of some significant use in the world. But this story tells us that when we give everything into God's hands, he will bless and increase our usefulness. And number four, the Bible tells us when we eat from God's table, we will always leave satisfied. Have you ever heard the expression, barking up the wrong gum tree? Ever heard that expression? Well, it's an Australian expression. Do you know what a gum tree is? Gum tree is a eucalyptus tree. The expression means that if a dog is chasing a possum or something and it runs up a gum tree, the dog may go and bark up the wrong gum tree. Barking up 
the wrong gum tree means looking in the wrong place. When we talk about the Antichrist, sometimes we're barking up the wrong gum tree. We're looking in the wrong place. It is a fact that in the world, especially, and also in the church, most people are barking up the wrong gum tree. They think the Antichrist is some organization out there by itself, and if they don't belong to that organization, then they're safe. But they're wrong. The topic today is the essence and the character of Antichrist. We may discover today that Antichrist is a lot closer to us than any of us have thought before. Please take your Bible and turn with me to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18. Now in this church, we read the Bible a lot. We get people to read the Bible. We have a little saying, read your Bible every day because the Bible shows us the truth. Now this is 1 John Chapter 2, verse 18. 1 John chapter 2, over towards the book of Revelation. And the Bible says, dear children, this is the last hour. And as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. So the Bible teaches that the great Antichrist comes at the very end of time. But the Bible says that down through history there have been many, many different Antichrists. And all these different Antichrists, the many Antichrists, are going to one day culminate in the coming of the last great deception, the last great Antichrist. Today we're going to uh, do something different. We're going to notice some case studies. We're going to look at special people and all of these people in their own way, in a very definite sense, were little antichrists. And they represented the coming of the last great antichrist. Of course, every person here in this church where we read the Bible Every person would know that there is a real Antichrist behind every earthly manifestation. And the real super Antichrist is Satan himself. Would you please turn with me over to the book of Isaiah chapter 14 and verses 12 to 14. where The Bible talks about the real Antichrist and that person is Satan himself, Isaiah chapter 14. And we'll start at verse, verse 12. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. This talks about the original Antichrist. Verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. 
I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountains. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. This happened a long time ago. When it happened, we're not absolutely certain. But it happened a long, long time ago when this mighty angel coveted the position of God. Now, God had a way of doing things. But this being said, well, have you ever thought there could be a better way of doing things than the way you do things? And so he set himself up to be like God. The interesting thing is this. This being whom we sometimes call Lucifer, the son of the morning, wanted God's power without God's character. And when you have power without character, you have big trouble. In fact, you have the essence of Antichrist. This being who was once a sinless angel became filled with pride and selfish ambition and he said I'm going to do things differently to how God does them. This being Satan, the devil or Lucifer is an absolute contrast to the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you come over here to Philippians chapter 2 verses 6 to 11. The New Testament Philippians chapter 2 and verses 6 to 11. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 11. A little book in the New Testament written by the great St. Paul. Now the Bible says, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, because he was God, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Uh, last Wednesday night I had a uh, very stirring experience. I saw the passion of the Christ for the first time. We showed it here in this wonderful church. Um, like all of you, I didn't find it an easy movie to watch. I felt as I watched the torture of the Christ, uh, the tension rising within me, my throat getting dry, my heart pounding in my chest. 
I know the liberals have said and others have said it's too gory and it's too bloody. But the Pope was right when he said, speaking of the movie, it is as it was. When they beat the Lord, scourged him, and I saw some of his back come off. When I saw his eye closed, the bruising, the blood, I think, in his mouth. And then Simon helping to carry his cross. That was wonderful, wasn't it? And then as they came up the last stretch, he turned to Jesus. Now, of course, this is a little bit of poetic license, license that Mel Gibson put in there. And he said to Jesus, it's not far now. You're almost there. And then when they nailed him to the cross, and that Roman soldier stretched out his hand, pulled out his hand, so they could drive the nails in, the nails into the feet. I thought to myself, what a wonderful God. This is what God is like. A God who has all the power in the universe, but to save us lost, dumb, condemned creatures, he comes down to this earth and goes through torture to save us. The very opposite of the Antichrist. In the movie, we saw the Jewish hierarchy. What dreadful people. The most religious people in the world enjoying the beatings and the crucifixion. The Jewish leaders also had the spirit of Antichrist. Would you come to Matthew 26, verse 59 and onwards? Matthew 26 and verse 59 and onwards. Matthew 26, verse 59 and onwards. And here it describes the great religious leaders of Christ's day. These were the people who belonged to the religious right of Christ's day. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any the many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. A high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say. 
Jesus replied. But I say to you all, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you. That's Antichrist, the Jewish religious leaders. These men had delivered Jesus to Pilate for one basic reason. The Bible says it was out of envy. Like Lucifer in the very beginning, they wanted the power of God, but not the character of God. They were filled with pride, hatred, cruelty, and envy. They were antichrists, every one of them. And then in the movie, we saw that despicable character. Every time we hear his name today, we feel a sense of revulsion. You know of whom I am speaking, don't you? Judas. Judas was one of the 12 disciples. I was reading a book this week that brought something to my mind that I'd never thought of before. Judas had been a miracle worker and a preacher of the gospel. For three and a half years, he had been anointed with power from the Lord of glory. Jesus gave him power to cast out demons and to heal the sick. But always there was one thought in the mind of Judas. What will I get out of this? One preacher said to me, the most popular radio station in North America is WIFM. And in my ignorance, I said to him, what does it mean, WIFM? He said, what's in it for me? That, of course, is the spirit of Antichrist. Judas wanted to be the president of the new organization. Beware of people who want to be high and lifted up above their brethren, especially in the church. And so because in his heart there was so much pride and arrogance, he had the spirit of Antichrist. Don't you remember the story of Mary? Mary who came with the alabaster vase to anoint the Lord's body for burial. And Judas led the disciples in criticizing her. And Judas, who was the treasurer of the organization, said, why wasn't this money sold and given to the poor? And the Bible says he said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. W-I-F-M. The prosperity gospel. Judas was the chief priest of the prosperity gospel. What's in it for me? 30 pieces of silver. So Judas, like his master, Satan, wanted position and power. He wanted, make me the president of this new church. 
Then the Roman soldiers. Were they not the worst bunch of individuals you've ever seen? They were not believers, they were non-believers. In them you saw sadistic cruelty. Do you remember the scene where they pushed down the crown of thorns upon our Lord's head? Cruelty. He who enjoys cruelty is a little antichrist. It amazes me, and I don't speak in piety, it amazes me to see people who profess to be Christians who love the blood sports. When men get in a ring, and even women, and beat each other up to a pulp, while the crowd, like a bunch of animals, screams, more, hit him, hit him. If you enjoy that, you are very close to partaking of the spirit of the Roman soldiers. Maybe we're barking up the wrong gum tree when we look at people far away. Maybe we ought to look at the gum tree here. Now, in the scriptures, there are many Old Testament characters who are there to introduce us to the Antichrist. There was Nebuchadnezzar. Don't you know the story? We've gone through the book of Daniel, and this is an add-on from the talk last week when I spoke about the king of the north of Jerusalem. Don't you remember Nebuchadnezzar who built this great big image of himself and said, all kneel down before me. And then when he walked around Babylon, he said, is not this great Babylon that I have built? In scripture, he is a type of antichrist. Like the person who came a number of years after him, Belshazzar. Remember when we studied in the Bible about Belshazzar and Babylon's last night. He also is an antichrist. Why am I so sure? Well, it's the last night of Babylon, which represents the end of the world. Everybody is in this vast banquet hall and they're drunk with wine. When the wine is in, the wit is out. And today I want to tell you, America is drunken. The nations of the world are drunken. That's why they cannot think straight. That is why legislators so often get it wrong because they're drunk. I was reading in uh, the LA Times about a famous religious leader who flies around the country exhorting people to give, 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 give. And often he is so drunk that he cannot walk straight. He too has the spirit of Antichrist. And on this night, Belshazzar, this young waster, was drunk. And when he was drunk, he called for the golden vessels out of the temple in Jerusalem so that he might desecrate holy things. That is the mark of Antichrist, to desecrate holy things and holy days and holy men and most of all a holy God. Do you not hear the name of God continually desecrated? Do you not even hear people say, 
And uh, I will say it, I hope in reverence. Do you not hear people everywhere say, my God. Everywhere. People in church. I even have church members in their conversations say, oh my God. Beware lest you die because you are taking the name of God in vain, you blasphemer. And then we hear other people, reprobates, who say, Christ this, Christ that, oh Jesus Christ, they will say, not in prayer, but in blasphemy. That is the spirit of the Antichrist. Maybe some of us have been barking up the wrong gum tree. And this man that night took the golden vessels. And when he desecrated the holy things of God, then the handwriting came on the wall that said, you are weighed in the balances and found wanting. Now, all of these characters in Scripture, the high priest, Caiaphas, Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar, and I could mention others like Nimrod and so forth, they are all little antichrists. Now we come nearer to our own day. And I'm going to read you a somewhat lengthy story which is incredibly amazing. This was written by the great Russian Dostoevsky. Now I practiced that for half an hour. <laughs> so I wouldn't mess up on television. Let me try again, Lord help me. Dostoevsky. Listen to the story. It's the 15th century, and we're in Spain, in the city of Seville. We're there on a day after the martyrdom of a hundred heretics to the glory of God. The burning of the hundred took place before the king, the cardinals, the knights, and all the beautiful women of the city. But on this particular day, Christ comes down to Seville in Spain. He didn't come in glory. He's robed as humbly as when he first appeared among men, but everyone recognizes him. There's a compassion, a sweet sympathy that beams from his brow and eye, and everyone feels it. So soon the children are crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, and people kneel before him. But, but then a blind man says, If it's you, heal my sight so I can see you. And Christ makes a gesture, and the man can see. At that very moment, they are approaching the cathedral and a coffin of a little girl who has recently died is being carried in and uh, the mother is weeping. And the crowd says to the mother, he could raise her. He raised the girl of old. She says, if it's you, raise my daughter. And so again, Christ says what he'd said 15 centuries before. He hovers over the coffin and says, little girl, arise. She's covered with flowers. They see her stand up with roses in her hand. At that moment, the Grand Inquisitor comes by. He's no longer in the regalia he had worn when he was martyring the hundred unbelievers to the glory of God. He's dressed as a simple monk, but as he sees Christ and the raising of the girl, his brows knit, 
and his face takes on a stern aspect. He's nearly 90 years of age, but he's erect, dominant, regal, and he's angry. He just points a finger at Christ and the guards move in among the crowds and lay hold of Christ. Christ does not resist. The people do nothing to help him. Rather, they make way for the guards. They are like sheep. So Christ is hustled into a closed, narrow, stuffy dungeon at the center of the Inquisition. And that night in the pitch darkness, the Grand Inquisitor comes alone. He has with him a small light. And when he opens the door, he sets the light down and he looks at Christ and says nothing for several minutes. Then he says, is it you or is it some semblance? Regardless, I shall burn you tomorrow. And the people you saw who kissed your hand in the earth on which you trod, they'll heap up the embers of the fire. Why have you come? Have you come to hinder us? You came 15 centuries ago and offered mankind a gift they didn't want. You offered them freedom and truth. You said, I'll make you free. But people can't tolerate truth. Don't you know that? People can't bear to be free. Don't you understand that? But we, we the church, have lifted that burden from them. We've given the people happiness. We've become their conscience. We've made it easy. We permitted them to sin and said we'd take the responsibility. And to us, they have spilled the inmost sinful secrets of their hearts. We've made them happy. We've made salvation easy. They just have to do what we tell them. And he looks at Christ again. How could it be that 1,500 years ago you didn't take the easy way to men's hearts? You offered them what they couldn't tolerate, the responsibility of choice between good and evil. Weak people can't handle that. Do you remember when that dread spirit, the spirit of non-being, tempted you in the wilderness? Just imagine if all the books about it had perished and we had to gather together the sages of earth to reconstruct what happened that day. Do you realize that the three questions raised in the temptation in the wilderness sum up the whole history of mankind and make plain all the abnormalities and intricacies of the human soul? If we found the wisest men on earth and these words had perished, they could never put them together so well. For on that day, the dread spirit raised the biggest issue of humanity. stones bread 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 don't offer them pie in the sky give them bread now for men and women want things they can feel they want things they can taste and they will worship anyone who gives them the tangible and the material but you pointed them to God who was unseen you asked of them faith and who can manifest faith that's only for the very strong. You refuse to work a miracle. But don't you know, weak people love miracles. They only turn to God in the hope that he'll work miracles for them to solve their problems, their problems of home and family, of romance and business. 
That's the only reason they want God, because they want miracles, miraculous. And you refuse to work a miracle. And when you were on the cross and the crowd said, come down that we may believe in you, you refused to do it. You wouldn't win, win men's homage by a miracle. How could you be so foolish? We, the church, have traded in miracles. He looks more closely at Christ. This is a great Russian. Are you listening, Bob? He looks more closely at Christ. Don't you understand? All human beings have as their main desire these three things. Mystery, miracle, and authority. And you wouldn't give them any of them. You wouldn't make salvation dependent on any of them. The only miracles you worked with were to point them to faith and hope and love, whereas our miracles point to bread. Don't you know human beings want to be like a great unanimous anthill? They demand worship because it's not enough to be. There has to be a reason for being. So even weak human beings must worship but they want someone to take over their conscience. They don't want to have to make decisions about right and wrong. It's heavier than they can bear. And they want everybody to be in it because then they feel safe. They want the whole world to be in the same worship. Then they'll feel secure. We'll ride the beast. We'll have the cup that carries the word mystery and we'll lure them with promises of heaven and eternity. And it goes on and goes on. And then the grand inquisitor looks at Christ who's been silent, he says, why don't you say something? And all Christ does is to step close to the grand inquisitor, this old man of 90, he kisses him gently on the forehead and the inquisitor staggers and trembles. Suddenly he goes to the door of the dungeon and flings it open and Christ moves out into the dim alleys beyond and the kiss glows in his heart like a fire. But he clings to everything he has said. If you don't understand that story, you don't understand what Antichrist is. If you do understand it, you understand what Antichrist is. Antichrist says, don't read your Bible every day. Go to a church where you're going to be hyped up. Go to a church where everybody is going to be roused up in a religious frenzy and where you no longer have to Think hard thoughts when no longer you have to read even difficult theological books. Be Dharma. Be like sheep. Be like the anthill. That's Antichrist. So maybe we're barking up the wrong gum tree, I would suggest to you. Listen to this. Wherever the spirit of Antichrist is found, there is Antichrist. Antichrist certainly was fulfilled in a great church organization in the Dark Ages. 
But it is more than an organization. It is the spirit of pride, spirit of control, the spirit of persecution, the spirit of conformity to our religious hierarchy. That's Antichrist. It's not just found in the medieval church, though it was found there. It is the spirit that says, don't think, just trust us. Don't read your Bible every day. Don't agree, don't disagree with any church authority. Just go along like a sheep and help to crucify Christ. Still nearer to our day, we come to a man who was perhaps the most significant philosopher of modern times. And I think most of you would know of him, Frederick Nietzsche. Frederick Nietzsche wrote the book, Der Antichrist. Let me read to you from his book, The Antichrist. Hitler slept with a copy of the book under his pillow. The most significant philosopher of modern times. What is good? Everything that heightens the feeling of power in man. The will to power, power itself. What is bad? Everything that is born of weakness. What is happiness? The feeling that power is growing, that resistance is overcome. Not contentment, but more power. Not peace, but war. Not virtue, but fitness. What is more harmful than any vice? Active pity for all the failures and all the weak. Christianity. The God of the spider. The God on the cross. What type of man shall be bred, shall be willed for higher being higher in value, worthier of life, more certain of a future. Even in the past, this higher type has appeared often, but as a fortunate accident, as an exception, never, never as something willed. In fact, this has been the type most dreaded, almost the dreadful. And from dread, the opposite type was willed, bred and attained, the domestic animal, the herd animal, the sick human animal, the Christian. Christianity is called the religion of pity. Pity stands opposed to the tonic emotions which heighten our vitality. It has a depressing effect. Adolf Hitler was a disciple of Nietzsche. He went to bed with a copy of it. He said, we will breed the Subar race. That's why they got rid of the Jews. Six million of them. That's why the Second World War took the deaths, not of millions, but of tens of millions of people. He was an antichrist. At the same time as Hitler was doing his devilish work, there was Stalin. I visited the places where the blood seeped out the walls of the Russian and the Ukrainian buildings where the blood ran down the streets. I visited those places. I've stood on the spot where Khrushchev said, the name of Christ is going to be abolished from the earth. I've gone with my team and Beverly to a forest outside Kiev and seen the thousands of pictures that represent the people who are tortured to death by people who believe what 
Nietzsche taught also. Get rid of the weak, the survival of the fittest. When I was in Iraq, I saw the great posters showing Saddam. And in profile he was with Nebuchadnezzar. When Jim and Joyce Niergarten, my dear friends, traveled with me through that perilous part of the world when we were put under house arrest and picked up in the middle of the night and hustled through the back streets of a Baghdad and taken in and, and interrogated, which I somewhat enjoyed, but when we saw these pictures of Saddam in profile with Nebuchadnezzar, so we could criticize him and nobody knew what we were talking about, we called him Neo-Neb. Neo meaning new, the new Nebuchadnezzar. Whatever you think about the invasion of Iraq, and the country is polarized over this, may I say this to you, nobody could ever sympathize with Saddam. This man who glorified in the torture of innocent people, who would take his victims and feed them feet first into wood machines. You know they chop up the wood, make wood chips, wood chip machines. Here's not this great Baghdad that I built. Upon the blood of possibly hundreds of thousands, we don't know. Now we have today the terrorists and these ghastly beheadings. All in the name of God, the terrorists who carry out the beheadings are little antichrists. Terrorism in any aspect where torture is used. Torture. I hear some people today even advocating the use of torture. When a nation uses torture, it ceases to have moral authority to lead or even to exist. Terrorists are wrong are evil, whether they be Muslim, Jewish, Christian, or Hindu, and all have done their share of it, in spite of what you are fed by the news reporters that only give you what they think you ought to see. Don't think you are informed after you have watched the news. All terrorists of the spirit of Antichrist, all are little Antichrists. And then we come to the last manifestation of the Antichrist. Would you come to Revelation 13? Revelation 13. So I ask you the question, are you and I barking up the wrong gum tree? Have we been looking too far afield Maybe the Antichrist is very close to us. Maybe in some of us, the Antichrist is in us, in our hearts, where we take away from people their freedom, where we try to coerce people to accept our religion, 
That's Antichrist. Revelation 13, verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb. So he's a pious fellow, is he not? He pretends to be fully Christian. But he spoke like a dragon. Ah, that is something we are afraid to talk about. He exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And he performed greater miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. That's what people want. Weak people want miracles. And so the Antichrist gives them what they want, miracles. He says, expect a miracle. Because of the signs he was given to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. He also forced everyone small and great, rich and poor, free and slave to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. So this is a power that arises in the last days that is professedly Christian. He does miracles to people who do not read their Bibles every day. He does miracles to people who've been brainwashed with too much television. Remember the religion of old, the Spanish Inquisition? He promises, promises them bread. What is this image? Do you know? The image of the beast is the copy of the beast. What is the beast, my friend? Look at me. The beast is the union of church and state. The image of the beast is another religious organization that joins to the state. It then becomes filled with pride as it takes over the world and persecutes. It wants power. Let me show you something that you will think perhaps is of no consequence. I get this stuff all the time from pious, good Christians. This is from a group of people who run religious radio stations in this great land. And they want me to broadcast on at least some of my messages on their radio station, not this one particularly. But they want me, when I talk about love and kindness and uh, heaven, they would like me to broadcast on those things. And they send me a little bookmark. You notice what it is? Most people say, hallelujah, how wonderful. Doesn't it give you a fuzzy feeling? It's the cross of Jesus wrapped in an American flag. Have a look at it. You say, but that's, that's what it's all about. That's what Antichrist is all about. You're right. The cross of Jesus is the church. The American flag is the state. And so in this great land, 
as never before, there is now a movement to bring church and state together. Remember the grand old inquisitor? The people couldn't think for themselves. It was a burden. So we took responsibility from them. And we promised them bread and salvation. And they do what we tell them to do. And anybody who thinks differently, we will burn. What is the essence of Antichrist? Listen to it. It is pride, arrogance, intolerance, control. Oh, how I fight control of my mind by political forces or by religious forces. Many of you who are watching the telecast will find this most awful, the worst talk you've ever heard, because you're so controlled. You've been brought up by controlling parents. Now you go to our controlling church and you work for our controlling organization. That is Antichrist. Control, contempt for holy things, money before people. It's like a religious leader who said to me, all I want you to tell me is this, how much money can you send me? He's a little antichrist. Who's going to be saved? <laughs> Nonconformists who follow Christ. Jesus gave the story, you know, of the two worshipers. The one went up to the temple to pray full of pride and arrogance. Lord, I'm glad I'm not like everybody else or even this sinner. That's Antichrist talking. Antichrist has no consciousness of his own sin. And the other man, the publican says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says he's saved. You see, the truth of the matter is this. When Antichrist goes down to hell, God's people go up to heaven. So I ask you the question, are you barking up the wrong gum tree? Remember what Martin Luther said in his conflict with the Pope. He said the greatest Pope, I have to fear is Pope self. There are two kings. We can be disciples of only one. Amen.